Well, good morning. It's been a month, so uh, hi, I'm Tim. I'm the, I'm the lead pastor here, and I also need to take full responsibility for whatever disaster you may have experienced in the parking lot. I went long first service, and so that was my fault. If you have a nasty email, send it to me, but I'm, I'm apologizing preemptively, so maybe you won't. Um, as I was, as we were worshiping this morning, and even as I was just getting ready to come uh, here before services started, I was thinking about how thankful I am for our staff and the volunteers that we do ministry uh, alongside. Over the last few weeks, uh, TA taught, the, the second time TA taught, I told him on Friday he was going to need to teach because I was sick. Uh, Jim, our youth pastor, taught last week. Uh, he and Erica are getting ready to launch a new school year with our students, sixth grade all the way up to college. They do a phenomenal job. Libby and Catherine have done an, have had just an incredible summer with our children, two VBSs and a Truth Seekers trip, and they're going to launch a new school year here. Uh, Brian and the team do a great job. All of our support staff, everybody we, volu- we do ministry with that volunteers in those places, uh, they're just awesome. And I am incredibly, incredibly thankful for them. And my hope is that if you uh, benefit or are served by or get to experience their ministry in the way that they lead and serve our church in any sort of way, I hope you express that thankfulness to them uh, at regular intervals. I hope you take the time to just tell them thank you for all of the work that they do. So I wanted to do that vocally. Whether if you're a staff person, a volunteer here, thank you for all that you do to serve the Lord and to serve this body so well. Uh, This morning, we're actually going to be looking at Psalm 100, which is all about thankfulness, but not less so in a physical sense and more so in a spiritual sense. Uh, Oftentimes, our failure to worship is rooted in a heart of ingratitude. Our failure to not just sing on a Sunday morning, though that's certainly part of it, but our failure to worship with our lives is rooted in a heart that's ungrateful to the Lord. And what Psalm 100 does is give us a picture of not just what it looks like to worship, but why we would have these hearts of grateful uh, longing to worship. And so the psalmist works in two parts, and it's all mixed in together in Psalm 100. Why would we have a heart of gratefulness, and what does it look like for that to express itself in worship? Psalm 100 is the culminating psalm in a group of 11 from Psalm 90 to Psalm 100 that are all about this kind of grateful thanks to the king. They're prophetic in nature in that what they're talking about when they picture God as king is that he's going to have this eternal rule and reign for all time to the, to the end of time, all generations. And we know uh, that that's going to come in full when Christ returns and puts an end to sin and those who have placed their faith in him are going to dwell with him uh, for all time. He is literally going to reign forever. And these Psalms picture that and it culminates in Psalm 100. Psalm 100, the prescript there says, a Psalm for giving thanks. And though there are a lot of Psalms in the 150 that make up the book of Psalms in your Bible that are about gratitude, this is the only one that gets that particular title. All of those 11 psalms from 90 to 100 are incredibly theological. They say a lot about who God is. You could just do a cursory flip through and scanning of those few pages in the Bible, and here's what you would see about who God is. 
You would see that he's steadfast and faithful. The Psalms describe him as being great and robed in majesty, that he's the judge of the earth, the creator of all things, that he is our rock, and that more so than anything, what you would see is that he is king over all things. And because of that, he's worthy of worship. In fact, more specifically, he's worthy of grateful, thanks-filled worship. In fact, you could go one step further as you're looking at these psalms, and you would get the feeling that this should be obvious. Not that it would need to be commanded or that you would need to be told about it, but that it would just, the obvious response to who God is would be this kind of grateful worship. And so here's what we're going to see this morning. We must see God clearly and savor God dearly if we are to worship God thankfully. That's our main takeaway for the morning. I'm going to read to you Psalm 100. You heard it once. We've sung it already, but I want us to hear it one more time. Psalm 100 says this, A psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve him with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Just five verses. Five verses that are packed with a why. Why would we be grateful to the Lord? And a what. What should that look like? And so we're going to start with the why. You can find those statements in verses 3 and 5. We're just going to work our way through them. The first comes in verse 3. Know that, know that the Lord, He is God. Why would we be thankful? Well, first and foremost, we can be thankful, we can be grateful that He is God, and the inverse of that, we are not. Now, in one sense, we struggle with that because we kind of want to be the master and controller of everything that goes on in our world, in and around us. But the reality is that there is great peace in knowing that he is God and we are not. Like Jim talked about last week, the success of all that we do rests on him and it doesn't have to rest on us, which means, as Jim talked about, we don't have to eat the bread of anxious toil, thinking that we are the ultimate controller of everything that happens in our lives. And there's a lot to be grateful for there. I don't know if you've ever just listened to the complaints or desires of the people around you very much, but imagine being the Lord and getting 7.2 billion of those (laughs) repeatedly all day long. He is God, and we are not. He willingly, gladly, lovingly bears the burden of that, and we don't have to. Our response is to bear the burden of one thing, which is obedience to him. While he worries about everything else, he says, I'm going to give you one thing. Just be lovingly obedient. There's a lot to be thankful for, to be grateful for there. Verse 3 goes on. It is he who made us. He created us. There's a general picture of God's goodness to all people displayed in his loving creation of every individual. Something that always amazes me is the diversity we see among humanity, and yet in that diversity, there's a reflection of all of us being made in the image of one God. As I've watched the Olympics over the last couple of weeks, I've been amazed by just uh, the incredible variety that humanity comes in, certainly ethnically, but also in size and in ability. For instance, just look at this picture. That's Simone Biles, U.S. gymnast, And Michael Phelps, U.S. Dolphin. (laughs) They are not only uh, 
just different in height. That's the thing that jumps off the page. They're wildly different in terms of what their bodies are capable of doing. Michael Phelps is 80% fish and swims really fast, and Simone Biles does just mind-blowingly athletic things on any number of gymnastic apparatus. But they're also different races. They're different genders. Every piece of their body is vastly different in size, and yet you look at that picture, and in some way, they both are representations of a God who created them in his image. You look around the room in here, and there are a few hundred people who all look very different, whether it just be in feature or in racial uh, skin color, in complexion, whatever the case might be, and yet everybody represents this unity in the fact that God has created us all uniquely in his image. It's amazing. And it's loving in the way that he does that. And you might hear that and think immediately of all the things you don't like about yourself. Okay, Tim, I hear you saying that God lovingly created me and that that's a picture of his goodness and I should be thankful, but what about the fact that I don't like this about my personality or my appearance? Or what about the fact that I wish I was better at fill in the blank? That's fine. But think about all the things that God has given you that are incredibly good. Consider the fact that you woke up with a heartbeat this morning. That when you take air in, it works its way through your body. That's amazing. He created us and he's good. And therefore, we should be thankful. The next thing that we see in verse 3 is that, and we are his. He's also called us. If you've placed your faith in Christ, then you have been called into a special relationship with him. Without going into a complete Old Testament overview here, God, early, all the way back in Genesis, called the Israelite people to be his own. And that they were going to be in this special and specific relationship with him. The Old Testament is the story of that relationship. In fact, it's really the story of God remaining patient and loving and faithful to that relationship despite Israel walking away and wandering away from him repeatedly. Through that relationship, we see that in order to relate to God perfectly, we need something greater than a list of laws to follow. Through the God-Israel relationship in the Old Testament, we see that we need a Savior. And when Christ comes, the message of this special relationship of the gospel goes to all people. And now anyone who puts their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins are brought into that specific, special relationship with him. We are his if you've placed your faith in Christ. It's as if you were an orphan and the king of your country adopted you and everything that the king had became yours. An inheritance became secure. You were on equal footing with one of his biological children. In the Bible's language, we're told that because we have been called by God and adopted into his family, you are now a co-heir with Christ, God's own son. If you've placed your faith in Christ, that's a reality for you. He not only created you, but he's called you into this special relationship. And then the end of verse five, or verse three, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. He cares for you. The Bible's full of this kind of shepherd-sheep imagery. Suffice it to say this, a shepherd would literally risk his life to ensure the well-being of his flock. He slept with them, he fed them, groomed them, protected them, guided them, took care of their health needs. God is constantly doing this sort of thing 
for his people. If you think back to Jim's message last week, Jim talked about the fact that God never sleeps. He never slacks off. He never stops paying attention or takes a break in all things, be they wonderful or dreadful, challenging or exciting. We can count on the fact that God is acting out of care for us. There's a lot to be thankful for in that. Jump down to verse five. For the Lord is good. There's no explanation given to a lot of these things. The psalmist just says them as if everyone should acknowledge the fact that they're true. The Lord is good. Well, of course he's good. He created you. He called you. He cares for you. He goes on. His steadfast love endures forever. Faithfulness is to all generations. He is steadfast. You can see his goodness and love in the timeless nature of his creating and calling and caring. It extends backwards to Adam and Eve in the garden. It extends forward to your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren all the way up until the day Jesus comes back. These are realities that lead the psalmist to this explosion of thankfulness, to this calling to a certain kind of grateful worship. And they're the very same realities that are unchanged today. In fact, we see these things all the more clearly because we've seen Christ. Not only is God God, but he's made it possible for us to live in a right relationship with him. Not only has he made us, but he's shown us the full depth of our worth in sending his son for us. Not only has he called us, but he's made a sure way for us to step into that calling. Not only does he care for us, but he's shown us the depth of that care and the sacrifice of his son on our behalf for our eternal good. We've seen his goodness in Christ. We've seen his steadfast love and can trust in it in the future. Maybe this morning you're hearing the why on some of this for the first time. You see, it's impossible, or maybe just not probable, to live the kind of worshipful life the psalmist is going to describe in other places in Psalm 100 if you haven't first stepped into this kind of relationship with the Lord. I've got with me up here the greatest writing utensil on the face of the planet. This is a Sharpie pen. It doesn't bleed through your paper. It's smooth and even and not gritty when it goes across the page. It's got like a little, it's got a little cushion right here for your fingers. I'm not kidding when I say this pen will change your writing life. <laughs> if I were to say to you, I want to give you this pen, here it is, what would you have to do? You have to take it from me, right? I could hold it out to you for as long as I wanted to, knowing that it's going to change your writing life, but if you don't take it, it's never going to become yours. Unfortunately, in America, I would say particularly in middle America or the Bible Belt, we have this mistaken belief that these kinds of promises from God are just, they just cover everybody. Everybody has them. If you live a good enough life, it's yours. If you just try not to do bad things, then it's yours. But the reality is these kinds of promises are held out for everyone and you've got to take them by faith. You've got to come to them with empty hands of faith and say, yes, Lord. I trust in your son Christ and his work on my behalf. And I want to step into that special uh, set apart relationship with him. I want to be one of his children, to be a co-heir with Christ. You've got to come to that and put your faith in it. Or else these kinds of truths about who God is are nothing more than intellectual things written on the pages of a book from a couple thousand years ago.
without stepping into that relationship, there's no way you would lead this kind of grateful, worshipful life that the psalmist is going to describe. And so I want to encourage you this morning, if you've not ever done that, that today could be the time that you step into that relationship for the very first time. There are going to be people up here after the service who would love to talk with you and pray with you about what that looks like and what that means for you. What does it look like to worship with a thankful heart? Well, we've got to see God clearly. We have to savor God dearly if we're going to worship God thankfully. And so what is that response? Well, verses 1, 2, and 4 are packed with these action words that tell us exactly what it looks like to worship God in this sort of way. In fact, there are seven of them. We're told to make a joyful noise, to serve Him, to come into His presence, to know Him, to enter the gates, to give thanks, and to bless His name. I'm going to group those together in a way that I think makes the most sense. The first one is know Him. You can see that at the very beginning of verse 3. Know that the Lord, He is God. We have to know His character. We need to know His gospel. We need to know our need for it. You may be here this morning and you need to know that for the very first time. You may be here this morning and you're hearing these truths for the 10,000th time. You still need to know them. We've got to spend time with God in order to see God, in order to get to know Him, in order to surrender ourselves to Him more fully. It's an ongoing daily practice. It's an issue of desire. You have to want to do that. It's impossible to exhaust the depth of knowledge and soul-transforming truth that is available in the character of God and in the goodness of His gospel. You cannot get to the bottom of that well. In fact, the more time you spend in it, the deeper it becomes. We need to know Him. We need to come into His presence. If knowing Him is an issue of desire, coming into His presence is an issue of discipline. You've got to set aside time daily, just you and the Lord, to come in to His presence, to spend time getting to know Him. Oftentimes, we push that to the sides, or we say, I'll get to that later, instead of setting apart the time specifically for that purpose. Those two are a private endeavor. You need to know the Lord personally. You need to make time to come into His presence personally. But there's a corporate aspect to this too. The text tells us to enter the gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. That's in verse 4. We should be gathering together with the body corporately. The psalmist here is talking about literally walking through the gates and into the courts of the temple. For the Jews, that's where God's presence resided. To go to the temple was to get as close to God as was humanly, physically possible. Today, this means go to church. I'm preaching to the choir a little bit. Recognize that because you're already here. One of the things that's awesome about living post-Jesus here is that God's presence is not confined to one place which means that we don't need to live with some sort of mistaken idea that God is confined to 1815 West Liberty Drive in this particular sanctuary. We can gather together as a body anywhere, and we're commanded to. In fact, Hebrews 10.25 tells us that we must not neglect meeting together. Part of our grateful, thanks-filled worship is to be together as a body, as a family. And at times, that's a sacrifice. You've got to set boundaries on whether it be your small group time or your Sunday morning opportunities to be here or when you go on vacation, find a church. Just 
Google real quick. Find a good church in that place and go and gather with the body. The psalm also tells us what to do when we get there. Make a joyful noise. Worship is certainly more than singing corporately, but it definitely cannot be less. I'm going to give you the easiest part of this entire sermon. When the music starts, sing. Sing. Our worship team, led by Brian, does an awesome job of putting together songs that allow us to sing about the greatness of Christ. They allow us to sing about the one who is created and called and cares for us. And to remain silent in those times is to display a heart that maybe doesn't fully understand the depth of its gratitude to the Lord. Now, maybe you're sitting there saying, Tim, I'm not a good singer. Music just isn't really my thing. Well, notice that the text doesn't say you need to make a pretty sounding noise. (laughs) It says to make a joyful one, a noise that worships in grateful, thanks-filled worship to God. I've got a friend who I think he's got a great voice, and he likes to sing, and sometimes we'll be hanging out, and his wife will say, what are you singing? And he'll say, it's my heart song. That's what the Lord wants. He just wants your heart song. He doesn't care what it sounds like. In fact, I would go so far as to say that God much prefers an off-key church to a silent one. And so I want to take a second here. Men, when the music starts, sing. When you look around a church on a Sunday morning, it's not hard to find women singing. When you look around a church on a Sunday morning, it's a little more challenging to find men who are willing to sing. And you might say to yourself, Tim, I'm worshiping silently. It's in my heart. And I'm just going to say, open your mouth and let it come out. There's something about making a joyful noise. The Lord commands it. Your neighbor doesn't care if it sounds bad. And if they do care, that's their own problem. Let them figure it out in the parking lot. When the music starts, sing. Sing. If you've got gratefulness in your heart, thanks to the work of Christ on your behalf, then let that out. Open your mouth. Make a joyful noise. The text tells us to serve Him. Service to the Lord is an expression of our worship. I'm not just talking about serving here at the church, though that's certainly a part of it. Romans 12.1 says that we are to give our lives as an offering to the Lord, that that is our spiritual act of worship, that if you've put your faith in Jesus, then you come before the Lord and you say, have your way with the entirety of my life. I will serve you to whatever degree you want me to. That's the kind of service that Psalm 100 is talking about. George Bowen says this, The servant of God has not been hired out for occasional services. He abides in the service of his God and cannot be about anything but his master's business. He eats, he drinks, he sleeps, he walks, he discourses, he finds recreation all by the way of serving God. Have you ever gone to a restaurant and gotten a waiter or a waitress that genuinely wants nothing to do with you? Yeah? We know, we know what I'm talking about. How, how like, emotionally offsetting is that? Like, they might as well just come to the table and say, whatever, just tell me what you want. Oftentimes, we relate to the Lord in service in that kind of way. It's begrudging. Charles Spurgeon says, you would rather have no servant at all than one who evidently finds your service cheerless and irksome. 
I think God probably feels pretty similarly. Our grateful, heart-filled worship to the Lord ought to include lives that are dedicated to Him in service. The last two are found at the very end of verse 5. To give thanks to the Lord. And to bless Him. I'm sorry, that's the very end of verse 4. You can read all throughout the Old Testament and you'll see these uh, references to blessing God. And I've always wondered exactly what that means. God is the blesser. He's the giver of all good things. What could I possibly add to him? He adds to my life without me deserving anything all the time. So for me to bless him, what could I possibly give back to him that would add to who he is? And it's always been challenging for me to understand that. A few years ago, I came across this John Piper quote that explains it really, really well. John Piper says, To bless God means to recognize his great richness, strength, and gracious bounty, and to express our gratitude and delight in seeing and experiencing it. This is the crux of the issue. Speak your thanks. Tell it to the Lord. If you want to crush your own thoughts of sinful self-dependence and prideful self-sufficiency, then create a habit of thanking God for everything in your life that you enjoy, are thankful for, and didn't do anything to attain. You give yourself about a day of that, and you'll realize exactly how much you have to be thankful for, exactly how much you have to worship the Lord for. We're right in the midst of back-to-school time here, and and you may have a a child. Let's say you've got a first grader. It's likely that the following scenario is going to play out over the course of the next year. You're going to be at Target. You're going to be walking around. And there's Miss Johnson. And to your first grader's horror, they let her out of the building. Like, I thought she had a cot in the back, and she just stayed there in room 12 all day, every day. But lo and behold, here is Miss Johnson out in public. What do I do? I think oftentimes we feel that way about our relationship with the Lord. Yeah, I go to church and I worship him at wherever my church building is for about an hour on Sunday morning, but heaven forbid he intrude on my life outside of that place. The reality is that this kind of grateful, thanks-filled, heart-filled worship is an all-the-time lifestyle. It should just bleed out of us because we don't become less thankful to the Lord when we step outside of our church building. What does it look like to worship when we're thankful? It looks like a heart that constantly understands those realities about who God is and then just responds appropriately. We're going to end our time this morning in worship. We're going to sing. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. We're going to spend about 10 minutes singing a couple of songs here together. Before we do that, I want to end with a story. It was told by Paul Harvey, and it's about a man named Eddie Rickenbacker. You used to be able to find Eddie walking up and down the beach in Florida on Friday mornings with a bucket of shrimp in his hands. And when someone would ask him why he was doing that, he would relay the following story. He was a soldier during World War II, and he was riding in a B-17 over the Pacific Ocean when they became lost outside of radio range, ran out of gas, and had to put the plane down in the ocean. He and his companions were forced to survive for just short of a month in a couple of nine-foot-long rafts surrounded by sharks in the sun-laden South Pacific Ocean. Eight days into the experience, they had either eaten or lost all of their rations, and Eddie decided that he was going to lay back and go to sleep, fully expecting that he was never going to wake up. As Eddie tells the story, it was about that time that he felt something land on his head. 
And he said, I knew it in my gut that it was a seagull. So he peeked out from underneath his hat and he saw the rest of the group staring at him, just frozen in fear that somebody would scare the seagull away. And he said, I reached up really calmly and I just grabbed its leg without any struggle. We ate the flesh of the seagull and we used its insides to fish for the remainder of the time that we spent on that raft and everybody survived. So on Friday mornings, Eddie would grab his bucket of shrimp and he would walk along the beach in Florida feeding seagulls. When somebody asked why, he said this, I do it in thankfulness to the one seagull that gave itself without struggle that the rest of us might live. What's it look like to live a life of heart-filled worship? It looks like giving your life in thanks-filled worship to the one who gave himself that we might live. We're going to stand up and we're going to worship that this morning. And when the music starts, sing. Sing.